Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo for Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, we've come to Thanksgiving week here in the United States, and, and really one of the big weeks of the entire year in the industry. We're going to have a... Uh, Cowboys game on Thanksgiving Day that's going to be the biggest audience of the year uh, domestically in the NFL. We've got World Cup uh, in full swing, a massive game uh, a day after Thanksgiving here with England in the U.S. College football coming to the end of that regular season. It just, uh, you know, really, we've been talking about what what a special fall it is in, in the industry, and it's really coming to a head now. Well, this Thanksgiving week is going to be amazing with all of the things, Eric, that you just mentioned, the many different events. But I'm also going to be down in Argentina, of all places, the first week of December. So it'll be interesting to watch the World Cup from uh, a country that may really be in the hunt uh, to win it all and to be in a bar, to be in a restaurant and really be part of that experience I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Well, in fandom across the world and all these different cultures, it really manifests itself differently than what we may be used to in, in North America and Europe. And it, it was a real object lesson for me a number of years ago watching the World Baseball Classic. And I've told this story many times that my the best game I've ever been to, big baseball fan, was the uh, 09 World Baseball Classic final between Korea and Japan. And baseball fandom in Asia just it hits at a very different level than you know what I'd grown up to with and was and still is used to now and uh you know I think you're in for a real treat in your travels I'm looking forward to it but before we get to that we have to root for the U.S. next week and watch some of those games here and and hopefully we we make a run Absolutely. And we've got a lot to break down across the industry this week. We've got a really interesting content deal involving the National Football League. We've got more turbulence in the U.S. sports betting market. And we'll talk a little further about the World Cup. Uh, but first, we're going to have a conversation with John Middleton. Uh, he's a video game executive from Nifty Games. Uh, they're in the mobile space. And uh He's a real veteran of the industry, and uh, he's got a lot to offer on what's going on in and around that space. So stay tuned for that conversation with John, and then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, John Middleton, Chief Executive of Nifty Games, a California-based venture-backed mobile games developer that has forged a sizable position in this segment of the sports gaming market. Nifty Games, founded in 2018, has forged a series of partnerships with major sports properties such as the National Basketball Association and National Basketball Players Association and the National Football League and NFL Players Association, in turn helping to power titles such as NBA Clash and NFL Clash. Last year, the company raised $38 million in a Series B funding to aid in a global expansion with backers of the company, including Stephen Pagliuca, Managing General Partner of the NBA's Boston Celtics, Courtside Venture Capital, Vulcan Capital, and One Team Partners, among others. A veteran of the video game industry across both software and hardware, Middleton arrived to Nifty to the Nifty Games leadership position after prior senior level roles with Mad Cats, Boomin Game Music, and Massive Incorporated, among other entities. John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's sort of start with the origin story of Nifty Games here. We're, we're four years or so into this. You've you've been around. You're, you're a video game industry lifer here. What was the uh, right. sort of origin story of really sort of focusing on this mobile segment in particular? Well, I'll tell you what, even before we go there, I'll give you the origin story of the name, which is which is a good one for your program because it's Nifty Games. I grew up in Boston, you know, and obviously Middleton last name. Rick Middleton was a center for the Bruins at the time. Rick yep. Nifty Middleton. And uh, that's actually where the Nifty comes from, is uh, Nifty Middleton. So uh, it's all sports related. You know, we are a company that is devoted to, to, to sports games, sports games on mobile particularly. And um, obviously, yeah, like you said, we're working with some of the biggest partners there are in the business. All about the bees then. That's right. <laughs> John, talk, can, can you talk a little bit, John, about the business model of, of Nifty Games and then how you fit more broadly into the gaming or games ecosystem? Sure. Well, we make mobile free-to-play games. So, you know, they're, they're on uh, device, on iOS and Android devices. 
around the world. Obviously, there's a big focus here in domestically, but simultaneously, it's a lot of expansion internationally. The model is mostly in-app purchase. So gamers are in there and they're upgrading their their players are in and their their cards to get better uh capabilities within the games so they can they can have a better chance of, of winning effectively. But then there's also, you know, there's in-game advertising, there's sponsorships, there's other uh revenue streams that come in as well. And um yeah, we're working with the leagues to expand that as, as wide as we can to as many uh, uh people as we can within the gaming world. You know, mobile over the last 10 years just has taken off like a rocket. I know I've been in games for 25 years. And mobile went from kind of a, a sideshow to now it's uh, nearly 60% of the total revenue of gaming. So you're looking at, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from territorial expansion. I mean, gaming is a, an entertainment platform that works in every market. This is not something that is, uh, you know, set into the U.S. culture only. I mean, it, it is something that's spread around the globe, you know, our entire lives and has gotten bigger and broader. And uh, gaming as an entertainment genre you know continues to perform at the top of the category and certainly in the last few years uh proven itself very well I want to drill a little bit more specifically into this new title of yours nba clash and where you see that particularly standing in the market you know elsewhere in basketball gaming you've got the uh, nba 2k franchise it really is one of the best sellers around the world not just in sports games but just video games full stop as you're sort of got that sort of standing alongside of you, so to speak, what are some of the particular features and attributes of NBA Clash? Well, it's it's a lot different. I mean, you know, uh, 2K is a masterpiece game. I mean, it's it's a it's a simulation game. It's a you know, it's a hundreds of millions of dollars spent in development and marketing of the game. It's excellent. It's fantastic. It makes great use of the hardware on on game consoles and and PCs. We're mobile first, you know, we're, we're sports games that are built to be played, you know, on the go, in the palm of your hand kind of thing, kids on iPads. So when you get into that, it's a different kind of gameplay. It's a different style of engagement. You know, we're much more of a quick session, play as you go mechanic, constantly looking at ways to keep, keep people engaged, but in smaller bites, you know, unlike some of the console gaming that is much more you know, longer session and more engaged, a lot more complicated. You know, we tend to be mobile games and, and certainly nifty games. You want to be easy to play, but competitive. It's basically, you know, easy to play, hard to master, that kind of a, that kind of a environment. Beyond the license that the NBA provided you, how are they helping you more broadly with this initiative? Are they providing marketing support? Did they add some ideas in and around the gameplay? How how does this relationship with the NBA and the NBA PA, I guess, as well, uh, kind of help build the business more broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's they've been fantastic. I mean, I've worked with them in the past, and, and as you guys lived at the beginning, we have some investors from from the ownership side. We actually have investors from the player side as well. The PA has been great. The league has been great. Everybody's interested in you know, video games. Certainly, is a category that is strategically important. This is not just about revenue. It's also about, you know, sowing the seeds of tomorrow's fans kind of thing and keeping people engaged, you know, when they're, you know, off screen, you know, off the court kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, they've been great. They've been looking, giving us opportunities to ways we can market both in their digital categories and then also uh, stadium and events on the player side. We've had a highlight deal with the uh, with Jamal Murray and Jalen Brown, it's gone really well. We've, we've put together a little uh, a short where they're you know they're playing against each other. You know, NBA Clash is it's a quick session head to head sports game, but it's eclectic. You know, it's not you're never going to play Celtics versus Lakers. You know, it's always you can be the Celtics, but you can also have whatever player from the league you want on your on the Celtics. You can pick your uniform, and then it's all about building your own team and, and leveling them up. So the, the better you get, the better your team gets. You're a little further along time-wise in terms of NFL clash. What can you share in terms of metrics and how that's gone so far and what sort of the uh, next iterations of that game might look like? Sure. NFL clash was interesting because it's a, it was our first game. You know, we we, we uh, started NFL, NFL PA, were our first partners and uh, led to some of our first financing. And so we built the game over a certain uh, you know, amount of time. Obviously, COVID came into play as well. We released the game about a year ago and 
We played it out for a while. We got a lot of learnings off of what was uh, going on in the game. We made it, it was more heavily strategy driven and AI driven as compared to NBA Clash, mostly because what we learned was gamers, you know, innately like to have agency over, over what's going on in the game. It's less about just dropping a player and watching them do what they do. They want to be able to have some level of control so they feel like they've got input on whether they've uh, won or lost. So actually, in NFL Clash at the moment is, uh, I'll call it in, in garage and retooling. And, and a lot of that is because of the of what we learned on the first pass through. And some of the things that you we learned for sure have worked in NBA Clash. And NBA Clash out of the gate has been very successful and and you know right now we're on the app store uh for instance we're uh i think we're a 4.8 rating out of five and that's you know that's pretty pretty darn good and we're, we're we're crushing it on gamers like it you know uh casual gamers like it and you know fans like it we we're able to engage with a lot of people that their core game you know like a 2k for instance would never have really uh given them access to now that you have this NBA game launched, you've got the NFL relationship without getting into too many confidential discussions. What's next in terms of either sports or leagues? Is soccer on the horizon? Obviously, it's World Cup week. What What is next as you think about uh, games and or leagues that would be on the roadmap? We're dedicated to uh, authenticity. So we're definitely looking at uh, other licenses, other partnerships with players associations and or, or player groups. Certainly, the international markets work well with mobile. We were built from the ground up, you know, platformatic, meaning, you know, a slate of products is obviously what we're after. We want to have some commonality so that there's, you know, you can go from game to game and, and understand what you're doing, whether that be, uh, you know, whether that be the NFL or whether that be, uh, you know, India Premier League, you know, yeah, a lot of excitement around around soccer right now and what's going on in Qatar. And I think uh, the World Cup always brings that to the to the forefront right so we've had a lot of discussions with different groups within that world of soccer and soccer is an interesting one out of the bunch because it is you know in many ways the global sport i think for us we've seen the nba proliferate territorially pretty aggressively uh, lately so that's that's been helpful but but on the soccer front yeah there, there's ways that we're approaching it that might be a little bit different than you've seen video game companies do it in the past that is a bit more granular and you could do that with mobile I mentioned your uh, Series B round before. As you were going through that process, what was the selection criterion of actually sort of putting together that roster of investors? And in the year plus since, what have those entities brought to you in your development? Uh, the Series B was interesting because, uh, you know, the Series A, we, we were over in each of our rounds. The Series A round was was the last investor in that really pushed us over was Vulcan. At time now, now Circano, uh, but they're obviously uh, the the estate of Paul Allen. They own the Seahawks. They own the Trailblazers. Yep, they're a AAA class tech investor. To be honest, with the Series B, when they made their offer to lead it, uh, we I, I did I didn't even talk to anybody else. They're an owner in both of the leagues that we are focused on currently. They're great supporters, and um, frankly, they they <laughs> you know they numbers on the table that made a lot of sense to us and. Um, they want to see us succeed, so they're get you know they're making sure we have enough gas in the tank to keep going. Gaming is not a uh, an easy industry to to build into. You know, even when you have a you know we're like uh, Nifty Games, the the little engine that could kind of small but mighty. You know, I like to think of us as a SWAT team, and um, you know we are all focused on sports, all focused on mobile, but still. There's a lot of work to be done, and it takes a long time to get to get that work done. And we're competing against uh, Goliaths <laughs> in some ways. If, you, if 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 I look at it, I don't I don't really view EA and 2K really as competitors of ours. It's more I, I would more collaborative. The gaming industry is much different than other entertainment sectors or even tech sectors. Where you know I wish all of them as much success as us. And and. Uh, I think it, as long as we're going along and we can be uh, contributive to the overall ecosystem of of both leagues, and in our case also, we're very player focused. You know, it's driven by the players and by, and by you know when you play our game, you're focused on players. You're you're learning about players and what what their best attributes are and what their skill sets are and why you want them on your team. You know, you play with with this this mix of players, like, similar to I guess what you'd see with a Madden Ultimate Team or FIFA Ultimate Team, where the, that that mixture comes in. 
So that's been pretty cool with the PAs too, because it really fits in well with their strategy. John, you mentioned that you do have a, a few players, I believe, as well as owners, but players as well as investors. Can you talk about some of them and, and how did that process happen? Did you, you know, select certain players you wanted to get involved or did the PA recommend some folks or how did that all work to get the players involved? You know, it's almost happy accident, if I'm going to be honest. Play, most of the players we have involved are through funds, kind of in a tertiary manner. You know, we didn't push on the PA for funding efforts or the league to make those kind of introductions. So it's more personal relationships and, you know, guys just want to get involved a lot. You know, players, I mean, one thing that, you know, as we talk about sports business, and and I always try to remind people of this when you get into it, I mean, even going and and working with JB and Jamal on on this uh, promotional video we did for launch, these are young guys. I mean, they've been through a lot, so they understand... uh, you know the the intricacies of, of media and the and 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 publicity and all of these things, but they're still young guys. When you talk about young guys, it goes hand in hand with video games. You know, I think if we were, you know, if we're a coffee mug company or if we're out there making a, you know, sweatshirts, a little less interesting. <laughs> but we have a lot of people they want to learn about it. A lot of the investment is really more about how do we get involved and how do we learn. And and our guys here as a company, we love that. We love to get people involved in the company who are passionate about sports video games. As you've gone through this whole development process that you've described here, this there's this whole other parallel world that's mushrooming as well in terms of Web3, Metaverse, NFT, so forth. To what degree do those two tracks intersect? Well, there's some intersection. You know, we've played around with, with the NFT stuff here and there. And I personally have some background and, and other people here have some background in it. Um, it's parallel, but similar simultaneously i think what you'll see is that a lot of the uh the ideas around digital ownership you know tend to proliferate towards video games as time goes by but maybe not so much the nft side of uh kind of general collectability and the idea of uh you know transportation of content between properties or between games or things like that that's a little bit different, you know, when you get into Web3 and, and blockchain ownership. But as far as things like, you know, you know, my kids, they don't they don't view psychologically any difference between, you know, their skateboard or the skins they have in Fortnite. You know, they just feel like they own all of that, <laughs> you know. So they don't know what a EULA is. You know, they're not worried about end, end user license agreements. And the reality is, as we go along, whether or not it's Web3 blockchain or not, the idea of being able to, uh, you know, commercially trade in-game assets has always been within gaming. This is not anything really that new, to be honest. It's funny with Web3 how how it's always uh, positioned as such a new thing. There's new technologies there. And blockchain is certainly a really interesting technology for lots of different purposes due to that ledger ownership. But the idea of, of owning and trading within gaming has been going on for, for decades, literally. So I, I see it going that way. I, I think that the ownership side is probably where you'll see the Web3 technologies can become more prevalent. John, what about any uh, intersection, if at all, with the betting space? Not necessarily that people are going to bet on these games, but as a lead gen or as a way of data. How, has there been any thought about that, how this intersects with betting? Oh, tons, tons of thought. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting one with us because we're not a big deca billion dollar public company like some of uh, the other people involved in sports video games. Uh, so we have more pliability. I mean, um, for both ourselves and for our our licensing partners, you know, the leagues and the PAs, and obviously sports betting has been rapidly legalizing. You know, I always talk about us the video game side. It's almost metaphorically like, you know, when you go to Las Vegas, you know, on the side of the wind, they don't have the Raiders minus seven. They're not putting the line up there. They're putting, the, you know, Beatles Cirque du Soleil, you know, <laughs> just, you know, so I think that there's a really interesting partnership and camaraderie that goes there. Look, we're our goal at Nifty Games, you know, we're obviously employing mobile video games and sports games. But our overall goal, if you whitewash, is we, we want to build the biggest community of digital sports fans on the planet. And mobile is a great way to do it. You know, there's not that many game consoles in India. There's not that many game consoles in China. There's barely any in Africa, South America. Mobile is everywhere and growing. And I mean, growing rapidly. And the, and the, and the hardware and the handsets and are improving. 
you know, these, what we're all walking around in, you know, our pocket right now is more powerful than the computers we had on our desk 10 years ago. So I think when it comes to sports betting, what we offer is retention and engagement. And obviously we've talked to different groups here or there, but it'll be interesting when they figure it out, when they start to think about how are they going to actually become more prolific? How are they going to engage right now that the amounts of money they're spending to uh, gain installs and to uh, get conversion to paid is is obscene. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like in our world, it's like it's it's almost common. We're 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 we are so fractional. We're a fraction of a fraction of that. Now that being said, there's also you know historically there's been a, a view of video games as if it's if it's all youth, if it's all it's all kids. It's really not though, particularly in mobile and particularly with these clash style games that we're talking about, which you know. Before us, obviously, Golf Clash did really well. You know, Electronic Arts you know, bought Playdemic for 1.5 billion. Golf Clash has been outstanding. Uh, demographically, you're talking about, uh, you know, that's an over 30 set, you know, playing Golf Clash. Fishing Clash, you know, done really well. A group out of Poland, 10 Square, has monetized great. And, and again, this is not 10-year-olds playing Fishing Clash. This is older fans of, of, of fishing. Tennis Clash, you know, Wildlife Studios, Brazil and Ireland, again, have has made it built a tremendous community, built uh, built out of a massive audience, made plenty of uh, money with the game. But again, this is not, you know, it's not your Nintendo Switch crowd. So when we look at it, we look at it as if, uh, yeah, we're we're an obvious fit with a lot of the gaming gaming companies that are out there, sports betting companies that are out there. And, um, you know, we're always trying to offer products to our, to our gamers. And if they want to go, uh, you know, throw down on the Celtics tonight, you know, who am I to say no? Bags would love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a ton happening in and around Nifty Games. We're going to be continuing to track that across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank John Middleton, their chief executive, for spending this time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Love the podcast. Listen to it all the time. So I'm really thrilled to be on it. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank John Middleton again from Nifty Games for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week here, uh, you know, no shortage of activity, obviously, in and around the uh, National Football League, really, at any time of the year. But uh, in the midst of uh, running up to uh, the back end of the regular season here, they uh, made an announcement of a very interesting content deal that really is going to push them in some new directions. They've uh, formed a joint venture with Skydance Media, and this is an entity, a big movie and uh, television producer. They've uh, done Mission Impossible movies. They've done a bunch of streaming series. You know, uh, their movies have generated more than seven billion dollars in uh, in gross receipts. Uh, you know, really one of the the big uh, entities in Hollywood productions. Well, they've come together with the NFL, and they're going to do a joint venture where they're rolling in the existing NFL films, which of course has been a uh, iconic entity in the industry for six decades. And they're going to be uh, putting all their assets together, plus some new investment and really uh, taking a lot of different directions in terms of uh, their content uh, efforts and using that NFL brand to move into a whole variety of forms of entertainment here. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the the kind of top level read, at least from my standpoint. Obviously, you you know the culture having worked there, but uh, you know they've sort of conquered American media and a lot of sports media anyway in a lot of ways, where they're far and away the the top dog uh, specifically within the sports arena. But now using the power of that NFL brand, the NFL Shield, to move into a number of other areas of entertainment and doing so with the uh, support of a major producer. Yeah, this is, I, I think, a, a pretty exciting deal for the NFL. And what it does, Eric, as, as you've alluded to, is it broadens the purview of some of the non-game content that the NFL and Skydance now can produce. And it's not only in football, the mandate 
for this JV is really to be multi-sport. So yes. clearly, you know, NFL films has, is, is the best at what it does, but the NFL films content has tended to be more around, you know, the specifics of football. They have done a lot of storytelling, but Part now dark, with, obviously, yeah, DocuSign, but now with, with Skydance, I think the, they can broaden the types of projects that they can do. They can leverage some of the relationships that Skydance has. Skydance also recently raised, $400 million from KKR and from the Ellison family. So there are plenty of resources there. So I do think this will help the NFL build an even, you know, again, broader portfolio of media assets now in a bunch of different distribution outlets with a partner like Skydance, which, which really brings some interesting resources to the table. Absolutely. And another investor in that Skydance round was Redbird. And this is an entity, of course, we talked about a bunch and they're, you know, all over cap tables of so many different organizations. We've talked about Fenway and we've talked about AC Milan and and one team and all the things that Redbird either is or has been previously involved with in a sort of backdoor way. They're involved in this deal now, too. They are, Eric, and it really is a validation of the NFL and Skydance, but more broadly is a validation of this notion of original programming related to sports, which I think was boosted by the success of The Last Dance. It's boosted by Spring Hill and by Religion of Sports yep. and more and more podcasts. companies that have now focused on sports as really a metaphor uh, or as an engine for storytelling. And so now these big investors are starting to really get behind that. And I and I and the NFL is not going to be able to capitalize on that. Yeah. And it's going to open so many. I mean, the NFL name, the NFL brand, the NFL shield that opens so many doors. And again, you put these assets together in a certain level. There's almost no limits where they can where they can take this thing and and the types of stories they can tell. There are a, a wide swath of, of programs that they can produce. The one thing I didn't see in any of the materials relating to the announcement or any of the, the interviews that, that followed was any real mention of NFL Network or the other NFL media right. assets, because there was, I think, at one point, some sense that that process around NFL media could include NFL films, NFL Network, NFL.com and related assets. Now, my sense is that some of those other elements, NFL Network, NFL.com, those could be part of a Sunday ticket package deal arrangement or not separate transaction or or, 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 uh, yeah but it's it's interesting that the film's piece was in a sense targeted and and put into this jv without necessarily those those other elements which means again those other elements could be part of different deals nfl network is an important outlet for nfl films a lot of the nfl films programming goes to nfl network but it certainly goes much broader than that as well but as you well know, obviously, having worked there, that the NFL does very, very well at um, serving a lot of mouths here and not doing just one deal in one segment with one entity that they've got a whole swath here, obviously, of domestic rights holders. They've got uh, in the, on the media side, they've got a whole swath of sports betting companies that they work with. And yes, there are certain category exclusives and sponsorship and so forth. But where possible, again, as you well know, they like to do a lot of different deals with a lot of different entities and they, you know, and then they haven't limited themselves. Yeah, that's certainly been the pattern from when I was at the NFL before I was there. And, and then after I left in this particular case, I think there may be some benefit to the league of moving those NFL films operations into a JV and not necessarily having to incur all of the costs or all of the headcount related to that. The only, I guess, question I have about the arrangement overall is that NFL Films, while while it is a for-profit entity and division, was also a very important promotional vehicle for the league, for the game of football. And not everything NFL Films did was always about how much money can we make today on that. Think about it it as a marketing expense. Yeah. So part of it was really about showcasing the stories and the power and excitement of of football. And they're going to still want to do that. And again, I'm sure they'll work that with, with Skydance in such a way that it makes sense for everybody. But again, the NFL film's mandate was not necessarily always make as much money as you can every day. There were other benefits to that asset as well. Yeah. And I also see some 
thematic adjacencies here to what the league is doing with Apple in and around the halftime show, because there's so many people who care about the halftime show and everything that goes into it at the Super Bowl that don't care about anything else related to the NFL all year long. And I think there's a real opportunity here to do things in and around and by and from the NFL that can attract a certain audience that won't necessarily care about the the core 32 teams and the X's and O's. That's that is a good point, Eric. That it's not necessarily about the core fans who are just interested in the the, the three and a half hour game. It's an opportunity to broaden the audience. Again, harkening back to what I said earlier about what the Last Dance kind of did for basketball, what F F one and you know that series on Drive Netflix. There's a lot of sampling that goes on, and again, everybody knows the NFL, and everybody, you know, I should say everybody, almost everybody loves the NFL. But this this allows uh, the audience to be again to be broadened and to be deepened. And with a professional, strong production company like Skydance, they can they can do even more things. Much more to come on that front. Again, there's a real fascinating deal that, again, really sort of pushes, uh, you know, a a North American sports league as we've sort of traditionally known it into, you know, some pretty interesting and new areas. But moving our attention now to sports betting, something we've talked about at great length here over the weeks and months. You know, we've had another uh, market casualty in the uh, U.S. market here as it relates to sports wagering. uh, Maxim bet. This is a uh, newer entity that had been uh, owned and run by the Carousel Group, and they'd been in partnership with the uh, men's lifestyle brand and magazine Maxim, and they were really trying to forge a sort of different approach or lifestyle entertainment approach to sports wagering than, you know, some of the big guys at DraftKings and the FanDuel's and the Betty and GM's and so forth were doing. You know, well, roughly not even really uh, a year of uh, operations, uh, they're out. Uh, They have abruptly shut down. They had been going in Colorado and Indiana, but they have shut down immediately. They're cashing out and refunding everybody that they had in their system. And it was really a scale situation for them that they just were, you know, really not making any market traction in those two states. And the last report that we saw from Indiana, their market share was less than one-tenth of one percent. And as we've discussed at great length, and as we just heard at the end of the prior segment with John Middleton, this is a very costly segment, and the big guys are losing literally hundreds of millions of dollars. We just had a DraftKings quarterly earnings report. Their projected adjusted loss for this year is in the neighborhood of three quarters of a billion dollars, targeting about a half billion more for next year. And this was not a a lane that Maxim Bet was comfortable in. Now, the other kind of recent news too, Eric, is that Fubo TV yep. uh, ex- exited from the, the betting space as well. Similar so calculus. There is just a lot of competition. That's pretty obvious. There are extraordinary, extraordinarily high marketing costs. And then you also have licensing costs in certain states. I mean, Indiana yes. and Colorado are sort of more reasonable, but if you want to be in other states, the cost of, of of getting in is incredibly expensive, either through upfront payments or the percentage of revenue share. So this is not a surprise. We're, we're going to continue to see some consolidation and some parties dropping out. But you know, in the case of, of, of MaximBet, they just didn't have enough either marketing muscle from the Maxim media vehicles. They didn't have enough capital to really run this out and they just didn't get enough traction. So again, uh, you know, one of a number of casualties that I'm sure is going to uh, uh, play out over the next couple of years in this space. Yeah. And then that just presents the big question is where are we going to be, you know, come Thanksgiving, say 2024 here, two years down the line here that, you know, I just talked about what uh, DraftKings is projecting and it's a somewhat similar story with the, uh, the other big guys, although you're seeing Caesars and some others begin to curtail their spend a little bit here, but this is a long arc that they're trying to navigate across and, and ultimately turn that corner into profitability, but it requires a lot of fortitude and a lot of patience in the meantime to last out 12, 18, 24, maybe more months than that in terms of really bending that corner into profitability. The operators are talking about more uh, prudence and spending in marketing dollars, but uh, you know it's still difficult for them because when they don't spend it, somebody else takes the share and takes the customers. And we haven't seen fanatics yet in the game. And they're talking no. about being in the game. They're hiring people. And that could be a major shakeup and cause 
another spurt of marketing spends as they seek to potentially dominate the space over time. So I don't think we're we're done with the marketing spends or the competition. I think it'll sort of ebb and flow. I think there's a possibility that companies like ESPN give, even get even more uh, right. entrenched in the betting space and, and devote more resources to it. So I think we've got a lot of competition and a lot of challenges from a profitability standpoint in the short run. In the long run, the question will be whether things like online casino, which is only legal in a few states now, which is more of the blackjack and poker and some of the other games, whether that ultimately combined with sports betting makes these companies a lot more profitable. And how long is that going to take? Uh, you know, no one really knows the answer. Yeah. And in the meantime, there's still you know, we're just as we're in early days of market maturation, we're also early days in product innovation here that you go on a lot of these apps, you know, it's like reading an Excel sheet. There's not a lot of visual engagement in terms of particularly trying to get a casual sports fan into this environment and do so in a way that they feel really good about. And so there, you know, we're still in very, very early days on trying to sort of navigate that whole user experience and have it feel something much more engaging, something much more visceral than again, just you know, reading a spreadsheet. You're right, Eric. And and, and that that those issues kind of come in two fronts. One is I think the casual uh better does not feel totally comfortable as he or she starts getting involved or starts looking at some of these interfaces. So I think there's a need to get some of the casual folks in with more comfort. But what we also haven't really seen is for the more avid better, the proliferation of the in-game betting and the in-game promo like we see in Europe, where in Europe, 80% of the betting might be in-game. In the U.S., it's it's far less than that right now. So I think from a product standpoint, you're right. We still haven't optimized that both for the newbies, but also for the very avid betters who haven't really been uh, you know, fully engaged in this in this in-game betting, which can be hugely profitable. Yeah, and that's a that's a bit of a cultural shift. And, and some of that is going to be some natural organic market maturation, but some of that also is going to be how the uh in in arena, in stadium on-site experience manifests itself. And a lot of these territories around the United States, those sports books are specifically gated by regulation outside of the stadium. And once you maybe move to a different arena where it looks a little bit more like Europe and you have that betting experience really deeply and fully integrated with the in-game experience from an on-site perspective, that's another thing that could really change what you're talking about. Yeah, there are a few stadiums in the U.S. that are working to incorporate that kind of uh, situation, whether the books are in the stadium or right next to the stadium or outside the stadium. And so I think there will be continued innovation in that area. But what I do wonder is now that the first cycle of these sponsorship deals is sort of going to come to an end in a year or two with the teams where the betting yep. companies spent all this money to be official sponsors of this team or that team. Are those deals going to be the same now that the betting companies are under much more pressure financially to not spend a ton of money on marketing? And so, you know, again, everybody feasted at the table from a league and team perspective when betting, you know, accelerated a year or two ago. But now the question will be what kind of deals are going to be available after this first cycle of sponsorships expires. That will be something to watch. Yeah, thematically, that feels to me how the uh, NBA jersey patch situation has manifested itself because it was pretty immature, like what you're describing here in betting, that first cycle for the jersey patches. And it was a little bit of a land uh, grab in terms of making deals. And now that we're into a second, in some cases, third iteration here, you're seeing a lot more of those teams be more thoughtful in terms of what kind of brands they want to be aligned with. Bigger dollars, certainly. And in the case of something like the Warriors, uh, you know, much more deeply integrating that sponsor across other facets of the business. And I think thematically, you know, what you're talking about here could also sort of play itself out as it relates to betting. Absolutely. And I think how it relates to betting will probably be the teams needing to do more to drive signups, to drive conversions, to drive actual new customers for the betting companies, rather than just 
put a sign up somewhere or, you know, kind of create some, some brand exposure. I think there's going to be more pressure in these deals going forward to really deliver referrals, deliver new customers. And the teams are going to have to get better at being direct to consumer companies, uh, as we've talked about in different, uh, you know, manifests before. Well, much more to come on that front as well. But uh, turning our attention now to uh, what we were talking about at the uh, beginning of the episode, uh, we're in full flight now with the World Cup here. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, how this thing is going to manifest itself that, uh, you know, I saw a very interesting comment from Alexi Lawless, uh, the uh, former U.S. men's national team star now uh, on air analyst. And it's like this thing could be Woodstock. It could be Firefest, and maybe a whole lot in between here that because we're in such a new territory uh, uh, with Qatar in terms of hosting big events. And there's already been so many operational challenges and cultural issues that have manifested itself and so forth here. What this thing looks like once we get to the end of the tournament, we just don't know yet here. But, uh, you know, we're still talking about the the biggest event of the world's most popular sport. We certainly are, Eric. And I'm not sure it matters that much what's happening in the stands as long as there's not terrible, crazy things happening in the stands. I think what's what's more important is sort of the quality of the matches, the the teams that advance, the excitement surrounding it, and also the effort of the various media companies that are presenting these games throughout the world. In the U.S., obviously, Fox is, is, is a big player, but we also have Peacock with the Spanish language yep. rights. And then there's going to be all this other ancillary media coverage of the World Cup on it, basically every sports outlet. So I think those things are going to drive the success or failure of this World Cup more than, you know, whether there's some operational snafus with the beverage services or with some of the other things that are going on in the stadium. Yeah, and and you raise a good point uh, about some of those factors there, and and we've had a chance to talk to both Fox and Peacock in recent weeks, and they're super optimistic, at least here domestically, about what uh, is going to happen, and certainly uh, the teams that advance, and if the U.S. does well, Mexico, what have you, that uh, it would make a huge difference, but just writ large. Both of those entities are feeling very good about the unusual timing for the World Cup and actually sort of seeing that as an opportunity rather than a hindrance. Yeah, the, t- the timing being in Q4 is certainly great from an ad sales perspective because Q4 tends to be the best advertising quarter of the year. Also, you know, around the holidays, you know, traditionally have been big viewing times for events like, you know, the NFL on Thanksgiving, the NBA on Christmas, those events have become traditions. And now putting the World Cup into that mix could be very successful. Again, the play on the field is something that that nobody really controls. But I do think that the stage is set for, for a lot of success here, not only in terms of media coverage, in terms of betting, in terms of a lot of the other commercialization, because particularly in the U.S., Soccer has come a long way, even in the last four years, especially European soccer in the way that it is covered, in the way that it is distributed. And what the women here have done in the United States. The, the women, there, there's so many, so much momentum for soccer that I think it, you know, we're inevitably going to see some upticks that are going to be pretty interesting. Now, in the meantime, as some of these macro level uh, trends manifest themselves, uh, you know, we are, we are still seeing some operational hiccups here. And we did have one with uh, Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser that their uh, concession stands are being sort of moved further away from the stadium and some outpost type of locations here. And this is one of these things where sort of the traditional culture of a large scale sporting event of which alcohol has been a fundamental part of that is running straight up against some of the intricacies of what the local culture is. It certainly is an issue. I don't think it's the hugest issue, uh, but I think more generally what it points out is that when we have the 2026 World Cup in the U.S., it's going to be an entirely different kind of set of events and set of opportunities around the venues, around the games themselves. I I think from a a consumption standpoint, the telecasts are going to be important, but I think once for this, this time out, but I think when we get to 2026, we're going to see so many different kinds of activations in the U S whether that be sponsors, licensees, media companies that I think that that will be really fun to, to watch and see, and will be much different than, than this year. Now, 
when uh, when 2026 rolls around, we just had this announcement over the summer of where the uh, matches are going to be held across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And at that time, uh, Gianni Infantino, who uh, heads up FIFA at the time, he he had this big aspiration that he stated that he wanted to have soccer be even bigger than you know, be the biggest thing in the United States, even bigger than the NFL. And that's a it's a pretty lofty goal. And given the dominance of the NFL and what we talked about earlier, even in this episode that, you know, may not come to pass here, but if we're going to see some significant escalation in where soccer stands, particularly in the United States by 2026, what happens in these next couple, three weeks with the 2022 tournament, that's going to be an important foundational piece of that goal. It, it certainly will, Eric. I think it's going to, again, set the table, particularly if the U S can can make a bit of a run here it will create the expectation that 2026 could be even better and and the lead up to 2026 and all of the commercial partners that may want to be a part of that experience that decided not to do it this year because of where the games were located or because some of the logistics but i do think we are on a very good four year trajectory i don't soccer is not going to be nfl football by 2026 but i think soccer is really now a seat at the table along with 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 hockey and basketball and baseball yep. and 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 football it's it's really an important seat at the table i think you look at some of the valuations of of mls teams yep. you look at uh, you know what's happening in the nwsl as as you noted we've seen an incredible uh growth in this sport really even in the last 5 years it even really just in the last 12 to 18 months you you know you look at uh, this you know, we're talking about MLS in a very different way, thanks in part to what the kind of attention they've commanded now from Apple. And you look at all the business gains that the NWSL has had under Jessica Berman and so on and so forth here. All your points are very well taken here that we're we seem to be bending into a, a different kind of trajectory here. And it's, you know, soccer has always been. I shouldn't say always has been a great participatory sport in the U.S. for the last 20 years. But it's only been recently that soccer has become, I think, a very important media sport in the U.S. And I think part of that has been the maturation of MLS. But a big part of it has been America's discovery of the European game and discovery of the EPL and discovery of what's happening in, in France and Germany and Italy and, and Spain and other places. And, and the proliferation of media outlets and the streaming services, which now need that content all of that has really combined to grow the game as a media property, not just as something that that kids play. And this is also going to be the first World Cup really since TikTok became a major cultural force here. So how this event correlates with TikTok and that particular audience and the kind of dominance that it's now assumed across the social media space, that's going to be very interesting to watch as well. That really speaks to Eric, all of the stories and all of the personalities and, you know, obviously the games themselves, they they're 90 minutes long. You know, you people probably watch those because they're sort of at once at some point in this tournament, they're, you know, win or go home. But I would say all of the ancillary content is really going to play a major role in driving the affinity and engagement that uh, that we all expect to see. Well, certainly much more to come on on that front here, and it's going to be an exciting handful of weeks here to see how that tournament plays itself out. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching your eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Well, Eric, keeping on the soccer theme, I was uh, interested to see the announcement this week that there's going to be a new stadium for NYCFC in Queens that is going to be uh, ready to play in 2027, I believe. So it's a while away, but it's very difficult to build stadiums in New York City. The fact that they are going to be able to do that and coming right off of the 2026 World Cup, I think is really big news for, for New York soccer fans and a big accomplishment for the MLS and, and NYCFC. Oh, this has been a huge thing. They've been searching for a new facility for so long. And this is the, you know, last year's uh, league champions, but they ended up playing this year, I think, at four different stadiums. Their primary home sharing uh, Yankee Stadium with the Yankees themselves. They've never had anything they could really call their own, truly call their own. 
you know, and this is just one of those things that just is just taken so long. And it reminds me a little bit of back in the old days. Uh, uh, I used to work in Washington and, and D.C. United down there for many, many years, just tried and failed to get a new facility. And every time I would see Don Garber in an event or whatever, you know, he almost was like, you almost hate seeing me because. Don't he ask me, ask Eric. I, yeah, don't yeah. ask. Yeah, 100 percent. He would almost body language would sort of yeah. tighten up and the same sort of thing would sort of play out anytime the conversation would come around to what was going on with NYCFC because it was so many years of nothing happening. Well, finally, something is happening. And, um, you know, it's a part of the world that uh, a part of the region that uh, is really growing and expanding. We've got new ownership with the Mets next door, USTA across the way. They're doing great things. UBS just down the corner in terms of the new arena. Uh, there's a, a lot of housing and commercial activity in that in that part of the New York region as well. I think it's exciting on a, on a whole bunch of fronts. And think about their selling sponsorships, selling season tickets right in the midst of the World Cup in 2026 in the U.S. So I, the timing is amazing. For very them. well And they're going to be able to have the wind at their back as they sell all those important various stadium naming rights and different kinds of opportunities. It, it really is well-timed. And from my perspective, uh, we had a very interesting announcement uh, surrounding Major League Baseball's Atlanta Braves. They've uh, heretofore been part of Liberty Media, which, of course, also owns Formula One, Sirius XM and some other assets. Well, there's a move now afoot to spin out the uh, the Braves and have them be their own separate publicly traded corporation. And writ large, things are going very well for the Braves, and this is part of why they uh, Liberty wants to do this and have the Braves uh, recognize their own value. They've been to the playoffs five straight years, set an attendance record this year at Truist Park, were the World Series winners last year. This is a very high-performing, well-performing franchise. But what's very interesting is amidst all of this success, Fans are still clamoring, fans of this team or haters of this team, for that matter, wanting them to do even more. And it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I'm fairly active on Twitter personally. The two most engaged tweets I've gotten literally all year, this is no lie, was in January when the Braves announced their uh, annual report for last year. And this announcement with the spin out, you know, just hundreds upon hundreds of engagements, hundreds of thousands of impressions. People really care about this situation and what's happening in and around the financial operations of the Braves. It's really fascinating. And now we've got a situation where in this new publicly owned discrete structure, you're going to have a very clean, specific look on a quarter by quarter basis what this club is doing. Yeah, Eric, that seems to me, maybe the big news coming out of this is is that it is one of those rare looks into the details of the financials of one of these uh, major league teams. And uh, although the Braves were part of a public entity or are currently part of a public entity, as I understand it, some things probably didn't have to be fully broken out because they were part of a bigger entity or bigger group of companies. Right. Now as a standalone entity, yeah, there may be even more detail that's available for people to see, for fans, for naysayers, for lovers, for haters to see <laughs> about all of the operations of these. And, and by, frankly, for players associations and for business partners and for everybody else. So it'll be interesting to see the level of detail that ultimately needs to get disclosed when they're a standalone entity and whether that information is helpful to, again, partners or competitors as they uh, as, as they look into that uh, situation. Yeah, it really does kind of solidify their status of sorts of the uh, Green Bay Packers of baseball in terms of how that business structure operates. Absolutely. But again, I think the fans are still going to care at the end of the day about whether they win or not. Uh, but this just adds flavor to the fire, I guess. No doubt. Well, we're looking forward to the uh, next uh, standalone uh, reports from the Braves uh, once this uh, transaction is complete, uh, which is projected for the first half of next year. But that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. Just a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 